You may be seated. Well, I'm just wondering when all this weird time is going to pass where I can see people's faces. I know how most of y'all look like from the eyes up, but I might not be able to recognize you in a crowd with your masks off. It would be really great for us all to be together again in one place and to have our masks off. And so let's pray for that. Let's be a church that's praying for the, the end of this, uh, this pandemic. But uh, as we come to the scriptures today, we need to realize that we're actually continuing a passage that was started last Sunday uh, in the reading of the gospel and in the preaching last Sunday in Matthew chapter 10. So Matthew chapter 10 is what we're going to focus on this morning, and it is the, the passage that we just heard read by Deacon Anne is a continuation, a continuation of Jesus' charge, his admonitions to the 12 disciples as he prepares to send them out as missionaries to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He sends them out as missionaries to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. In fact, you could call this passage in Matthew chapter 10, Jesus' own manifesto for missionaries. And far from being relevant only to those who go overseas in foreign missions, we need to remember that all of God's church, all of us in this room together, are wrapped up in God's missionary effort in the world. We call that the missio dei, the mission of God. And so this passage applies to us today because while we are not called, some of us are called to foreign missions, most of us are not called to foreign missions, nevertheless, all of us are missionaries. We all are a part of being God's emissaries for his kingdom reign and his truth and the good news about Jesus Christ in the world without exception from the very youngest to the very oldest of us. Now, there's a phrase that I hear frequently today and I think that it got started in the academy. That's where I first started hearing it. I didn't hear it before about 30 years ago, but I hear this phrase a lot of times now. I, I don't feel safe. I don't feel safe. In other words, it would be in a situation like, uh, Professor Jones, I don't feel safe in this class. In other words, it's not really about someone fearing personal bodily harm in that sense of fear. It's like, Professor Jones, I fear someone might disagree with me or that my assumptions might be challenged, or my ideas might be challenged, and I don't want that to happen, and so I'm going to say I'm afraid. Well, that's, uh, that kind of statement actually uh, seems to contrast with what Jesus is actually doing here. Instead of avoiding making us feel unsafe, it's like Jesus is going out of his way to tell his disciples that they are not going to be safe on this missionary venture with him. He goes out of his ways to tell us that we're not going to be safe. In other words, he says, you're going to, if you follow me, if you're going to be on mission with me in the world, you're going to get in trouble with the law. You're going to be publicly beaten. You're going to be betrayed by those closest to you and put to death because of me. You're going to be maligned, and people are going to say all kinds of horrible things about you that are completely false. And then the disciples saith unto him, Lord, thou makest us feel triggered you know so it is it's like he goes out of his way to not make us feel safe but seriously even though we are told these very alarming things by Jesus he says this in the context as we heard last week he says but do not be afraid of them 
Don't be afraid. Why? Because God cares for you. Even the hairs on your head are numbered. You know, God cares about the sparrows. If one sparrow falls from the sky, God cares about it. You're worth more than many sparrows. Y'all, you're worth a lot more than the birds. Than all the birds on your bird feeder, you're worth more than that. And God cares for you. Even if you die for my sake, you will live. God is in control. And so he broadens our horizons beyond the immediate things that might be difficult and literally unsafe for us in this world to see things in, a, in an eternal, eternal perspective as we prepare to go out in mission from him. And where does the mission field begin? It's like, you know, right outside that front door there. So today's text is a continuation of that discourse. And so let's just dive right in at the beginning of the passage we heard this morning in verse 34. Matthew chapter 10, verse 34, Jesus said, do not think that, listen, this is Jesus. You know, Jesus, the guy that's kind of supposed to be all nice and cuddly and you know, stroking baby lambs, like little children are coming to him, you know, kind of might look not real, I don't know, robust in some of the uh, traditional Western depictions of Jesus. He kind of looks like he has low testosterone or something. And, uh, but <laughs> yeah, I say things like this, and it's rabbinic hyperbole. It's meant to engage you, but I think it probably you know, offends some people. But it says this, Jesus said, Do not think that I have come to bring peace on the earth. Do not think that I have come to bring peace on the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. What a startling statement from the Lord Jesus. That is not the kind of thing we expect Jesus to say. What is he talking about here? What is this sword he mentions? Well, first of all, this, this sword represents Conflict. The sword that Jesus speaks of represents conflict. The good news of the kingdom of God is always going to be met, Jesus says, by resistance. And in some cases, violent resistance. The gospel engenders conflict because it is a proclamation of God's rule and reign over against the presumptuous false claims of rule and reign by the world, the flesh, and the devil. And when those two collide, there's inevitable conflict. You know, Dietrich Bonhoeffer said that the peace of Jesus is the cross. The peace of Jesus is the cross. And then he says this, but the cross is the sword God wields on earth. The, the cross is the sword God wields on earth. What an amazing statement, and I think he's exactly right. You see, in the cross of Jesus, we see the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world in sharpest contrast and fiercest conflict. In the cross, we see the kingdom of God and the kingdoms of this world in sharpest contrast and in fiercest conflict. The cross is the supreme expression of God's love for the world. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. It is the, the cross is the supreme expression of God's love for the world. And the cross is the supreme expression of the world's rejection of God's love. The cross is where Jesus most clearly expresses his kingship. Even Pontius Pilate had inscribed on the the titleless, the plaque above Jesus' head as he hung on the cross in crucifixion. This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. 
The cross of Jesus Christ is where the kingship of Jesus is most clearly expressed. And the cross of Jesus is where the world most clearly rejects his kingship. We will not have this man to reign over us. Jesus Christ enters this fallen, broken, dark world and as the imperfect embodiment of God's kingdom and God's love. And the cross is how the world responds. That's the sword. That's the conflict. That's the sharp fray between God's kingdom and the world. But the good news is this, is that on the cross, God embraces all of the world's hostility with arms stretched wide until our, until our frenzied hatred and rebellion have spent themselves in savage waves beat against the breasts of Jesus. And after all that rage and hatred is poured out upon him as people mock him as one of the thieves mocks him from another cross, a dying convict is picking on Jesus who's dying next to him. And as the religious leadership comes by and wags their heads and say, oh, he saved others, but he cannot save himself. If you are the Messiah, come down from the cross and we will believe in you. And after all of that rage and hatred, Christ remains enthroned on God's love, and that limitless, infinite love still burns all the brighter. And because it cannot be extinguished by our rage, our hatred, our rejection, because the, it, because the light of the world rose again on the third day, the cross is victory and not defeat. The cross is victory and not defeat. That's the cross. That's the sword Jesus brings. And here's the application for those disciples that Jesus, the 12 that he sends out, and for the disciples here in this room and the disciples that are home watching on the internet, here is the, here is the application for us. Please listen, and if you're writing something down, I would write this down. Every time God's love and God's kingdom encounter the darkness of this world, every time God's love and God's kingdom reign encounter the darkness of this world, the result is inevitably a cross. Now, it's not always a literal cross, but it is inevitably a cross. There is always that cross involved. That's exactly what Jesus told his disciples in verse 38 here. He says, and whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. He's saying there's something about following me as my emissary in the world. It's always taking up a cross. So Jesus says, do you want to follow me? then don't be alarmed, don't be surprised if there is a cross involved. So if you go on the mission field, brothers and sisters, if you go on the mission field to reach people who have never heard the good news about Jesus, the result is going to be the cross. You will be entering into spiritual warfare. And I have to say, it's always, I'm, I don't learn very quickly. Because every time I, we do a new, something new, something that expands the kingdom reign of Jesus, some place where the good news goes out or the, or the justice of God is going to be expressed, every time that happens, it's met with this wave of spiritual resistance. And I'm always like, whoa, what just happened? I'm so confused by this. No, Jesus is saying, don't be confused by that. If you're going to follow me, 
you're going to follow me into spiritual warfare. There's always a cross involved. So if you try to plant a new church and a community, like Father Chris is doing in Beckley, like one thing, you know, things just, like they had just apocalyptic sewer issues and their home that they moved into when they got to Beckley. I mean, it's like, you know, one thing after another. It's so appropriate uh, that, that just kind of interfered with this new venture. And, of course, they're praying through it, and, and, and in the power of the Holy Spirit, they are prevailing. But every time, if you go to plant a new church in a community, there's going to be a cross involved. There will be resistance. If you are trying to bring the gospel the gospel of Jesus Christ into the academy or finance or business or medicine or the media or public policy or in any other area where the anti-God systems of this world dominate, we will inevitably encounter the cross along the way. And although we may see the results of this through human rejection and human opposition, what really is at work is the violent response of our spiritual adversaries. Week after week after week here lately, all the way back till the beginning of June, this, this same phrase has come up again from Ephesians, you know, uh, that we do, not, you know, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, brothers and sisters, but against powers and principalities and spiritual wickedness in the heavenly places. So that quality of spiritual warfare is always present when we go into the world in mission. And very specific to our collective moment in this nation, we need to know that if we bring the message of the kingdom of God against the systems of oppression and racism, we need to know that we should expect, if we're bringing the message of Jesus into this moment where it's most needed, expect the cross to happen. Expect the cross to happen. That means that what you say and that what you do in the name of Jesus is not, people are not going to say, oh, we're so glad you said that and did that. We, it will not, even though we are addressing the current moment, the current crisis, with the genuine remedy for human sin and patterns of evil in the world, it will not be received with applause or approval. In fact, you might not even be welcomed. Just last week on Instagram, and by the way, thanks be to God, I have not been sucked into that vortex. Uh, <clears throat> but, but I am aware of it. Uh, just last week on Instagram, Instagram removed a video of a worship service at the George Floyd Memorial site because the video, and this is on the, in the words of Instagram, was deemed harmful. Harmful and in violation of community standards. Now, I went and I didn't, now when I read about that, I didn't believe it because you, why? I don't believe anything hardly anymore that gets reported in a headline. It makes it, we all have to like footnote everything at this time. You know, what, what, everybody seems to have an agenda. And so what's really going on here? And then, and, and then I kind of have to go layer under layer because there might be something else going on that's not immediately apparent as we encounter these sort of inflammatory headlines and things like that. So I went and I found that video, this, this dangerous, harmful video, and I found it on YouTube. They didn't know it was dangerous and harmful yet, evidently. And it was dangerous. It was very dangerous because it was full of all people, all races, full of people of all races praying together. Dangerous, harmful. 
And, and you know what? They were also worshiping together. And the good news of Jesus was being proclaimed. I mean, his name was being spoken repeatedly. And then reconciliation through Jesus Christ was being proclaimed. It was a video of people being healed, people accepting Jesus, and people being baptized right at the very spot where an unjust death had occurred, where injustice, grave wickedness had been done. But this video was deemed to be harmful by the powers and principalities of big tech, and so it had to, be, it had to come down. So the message of peace and reconciliation, I'm very convinced about this, and, and you know, I've told you this uh, a week before last, I think, that um, what, what we say about reconciliation through Jesus Christ, please listen, is not merely a tribal truth for just Christians, for just us in this room. No, it is the true story of reconciliation for the whole world. As a matter of fact, it's, it's right here, you know, I, I, I thought about, I'm going to maybe at some point preach this whole passage, but just let me read this to you. It's Ephesians chapter 2, verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace. Where's the peace? For he himself is our peace who made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility and made us one in his flesh, taken down, broken down the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. And I am convinced that is the message that we, that is the only message that has the remedy for the brokenness and oppression and injustice and division in our world today. The message of peace and reconciliation through Jesus Christ, though, which is our only hope to address this unjust injustice and racism, is rejected by the world. The world wants to snuff it out. They want to give it a cross. But every time the world hands us a cross, God responds by resurrection. Don't give up, brothers and sisters. Embrace the cross that comes. Don't be like Ben Sharp and say, whoa, what just happened? It is not defeat. It is not the end. It is the sword God wields for his victory on this earth. And that is good news. For when we are weak, then he is strong. Then Jesus continues to trigger us by saying that following him is an inherently divisive activity. Jesus says, For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. This is the sword of division, a sword that cuts, that cleaves. You know, we live in an incredibly divided era. In fact, in my lifetime, and I lived through the 1960s, I have never seen this country so divided as it is right now. It's actually rather scary. And we rightly see that kind of divisiveness in our world as something to be lamented and mourned over. But we do need to realize that there are some kinds of divisions that are necessary. For instance, there's the division between truth and error, truth and falsehood. You know, and I've got to tell you, folks, I think that, that making those strong, crisp 
clear demarcations between truth and error are, in, uh, are offensive, <laughs> triggering maybe, in our culture right now. Kind of, kind of bothers us. There's also the division, necessary division, between good and evil. It's necessary. We, we don't want those things to commingle. So to choose truth and to choose good means that you necessarily will be dividing yourself from, from falsehood and evil. And the supreme example of this species, this kind of division, is the choice to either follow Jesus Christ and be loyal to him or to reject him. And that is a division that is eternal in nature. That division, unfortunately, even happens in families. It's happening in families in this room today. Some of you face the enmity and scorn, the enmity and scorn of your children because you have elected to follow Jesus. Or if you're a Calvinist, you have been elected to follow Jesus. I can say both of those. I'm a Bible Christian. Some of us face the scorn and enmity of our siblings, our brothers and sisters, or perhaps even our unbelieving parents because we have vocally, overtly, and publicly chosen to follow Jesus, and we really mean it. You know, we beat ourselves up sometimes about this, and we think that if we could just be more winsome, and I've heard that word many, many times, if we were just more winsome, people would accept us as followers of Jesus Christ. But Jesus says that the reality is that even if we were perfectly adorable, furry little Christians, you know, the cute, tiny little chipmunks that are so adorable, that's their one defense against predators, is that I am too cute for you to eat. I don't think it's convincing the red-shouldered hawks in my neighborhood, but they really are just adorable. They're like little remote-controlled cars with their tails up in the air as they zip across the driveway. And I'm thinking, these things are so destructive in the garden, but they're so adorable. You can be as adorable as a chipmunk, but if Jesus is the one we are overtly, vocally, publicly following, we can expect rejection and division. The person of Jesus Christ is inherently divisive because he calls us to a different loyalty and different loves than the world, the flesh, and the devil present to us. And in the face of that kind of opposition and division, Jesus says, remain unshakably loyal to me. Matthew chapter 10, verses 37 through 39. Jesus said, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So, brothers and sisters, be aware that other loves, other loyalties will woo us. Other loves and other loyalties will motivate us, urge us to compromise on the gospel. The pressure is enormous today to surrender our loyalty to Jesus Christ alone. I feel it. And I know that for those of us, you know, and I'm the pastor, so in some ways I'm kind of protected a little bit. You know, people expect me to be about Jesus but you going into the world in your place of work or in your home or among your friends, 
pressure to surrender our loyalty to Jesus Christ alone is enormous. But Jesus promises if we remain loyal to him, even unto death, we're going to find a life in this life and in the life to come that is life, real life, a life that is worth living, a life in this world, even though we may face opposition, if we do not surrender our loyalty to Jesus Christ, we will find the life that is truly life, a life of worth and value, and in the age to come, eternal life. Now, is that kind of thing really true, or is that just something preachers say on Sunday morning? Well, let me tell you a true story. It's adapted from William Bush's book, and then it's been adapted again. It was, I found it. I knew about this, but I, I've got the fuller history of it, uh, about uh, the story I'm about to tell you. It was on a, uh, a blog, and then it's based on a book, William Bush's book, To Quell the Terror. And so I'm just going to read most of this to you because I think it's very appropriate and, in fact, quite pertinent to today. During the French Revolution's reign of terror on the evening of July 17, 1794, in Paris's Place de la Nation, a hardened crowd waited at the guillotine for the carts carrying that day's batch from the Palais de Justice, the Palace of Justice. And instead of the usual jeers and taunts, a hush fell over the plaza, because as the carts bringing the condemned to the scaffolds approached, the crowd heard serene female voices chanting the Te Deum. What's the Te Deum? It's an ancient Christian hymn. It's in the Book of Common Prayer. So in our, it's in our uh, daily office uh, for every morning prayer. You can pray. The te, you can sing. You can offer up the Te Deum Laudamus. Beautiful hymn. The singers that brought that hush to the crowd were 16 sisters from the Carmelite Monastery in Compania. They should have looked sad, they should have looked terrified because they were about to be beheaded, but instead they looked radiant and joyous. And the reason for the Carmelites' joy was their conviction, their belief that the guillotine was literally an answer to their prayers. Every day for almost two years, the sisters had made an act of daily consecration in which they offered their lives to God even to, to the point of sacrifice in order to restore peace. If we could, Lord, if it means laying down our lives to restore peace and save France and to stop the killing, we will offer our lives to Jesus in that way. At the scaffold, the sisters performed devotions normal for dying Carmelites, the nuns, renewed their monastic vows of uh, chastity, chastity, poverty, and obedience. They sang the ancient hymn, Come, Creator Spirit, which we sing here whenever someone is ordained, when the bishop comes to do ordinations. Vine Creator Spiritus. And then Mother Teresa of St. Augustine walked over to the foot of the scaffold steps and turned to face her spiritual daughters, and she summoned 29-year-old, the youngest Nun in the convent, 29-year-old Sister Constance, who approached her. Now, previously, Sister Constance had expressed a terror, a terrible fear of the guillotine. But at the scaffold that night, she showed no fear whatsoever. At the steps, Sister Constance knelt at her prioress's feet and received a blessing. And bowing her head, she said this. She asked, 
Permission to die, mother. Permission to die, mother. What you don't know is that she had been, the reign, the, the reign of terror, the French Revolution had begun six years prior to this, and there had, the law had forbidden the taking of religious vows. The law had prohibited this. And so an extremist, at the very end of her life, she does her first act of holy obedience as a nun in the Carmelite tradition. Permission to die, mother. Go, my daughter. Sister Constance rose from her knees, and a witness in, of that event described her as radiant as a queen going to receive her crown, going to receive her diadem. And as she began to climb the scaffold, she spontaneously began to sing Psalm 117. And hearing, her, uh, hearing her, their sister, Sister Constance, all the other nuns began to sing the same psalm in unison. Oh, praise the Lord, all you nations. Praise him, all you peoples. For great is his loving kindness toward us. And the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. And at the top of the scaffold steps, Sister Constance waved aside the executioner and his assistant, and she boldly and willingly went and stood by the vertical balanced plank. They strapped her to it, and then they lowered it into the horizontal position, and with a swoosh and a thud, the guillotine had cut the number of singing voices from 16 to 17, but the remaining voices rose all the louder in defiance, singing the praises of Jesus. And about every two minutes, one voice would fall away from the others to be heard no more. Each sister, when her time came, went to their spiritual mother, and knelt and received a blessing and asked permission to die, mother. And the response is always, go, my daughter. The psalm chant stopped only when the last Carmelite, the prioress, Mother Teresa of St. Augustine, age 41, had climbed the scaffold steps and followed her daughters in Christ. Now, just three hours earlier, at La Palais de Justice, the sisters had been condemned to death at a show trial, proving them to be enemies of the state, enemies of the people. The blatantly false charges included the hiding of weapons in their convent. And in answer to that charge, Mother Teresa of St. Augustine lifted the cross from around her neck and put it in the face of the presiding judge and said, the only weapon we have ever had in our convent is this. And that cross conquered. Because, and I think this was a miraculous act of God, just 10 days after the Carmelite sisters fulfilled their vow and offered themselves up in sacrifice to stop the bloodshed, Robespierre, who was perhaps the key architect of the reign of terror, fell from power, and the very next day, July 28, 1794, he was guillotined, and the reign of terror soon ended. Whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Oh, what worthy followers of Jesus. Whoever finds his life will lose it. 
whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. They didn't find just their own lives, they found life for their country. Because they were loyal to Jesus to the end. In our present moment, though the fray may not be as hard, the battle not as intense, we can expect Christ to be no less faithful to us as we take up his cross in the public square as these Carmelite nuns did. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.